God is sovereign and in control of the details. Do you believe that? Does it motivate your obedience? On our Shirk family vacation uh, two weeks ago, some of us headed to Wild River Water Park at the uh, Raystown Lake Resort, and it's a small water park with a pool. Well, Andrew is three, and he's not uh, accustomed or known to do cannonballs into the pool. Uh, He can't swim. So I'm in the pool, and Andrew is at the side of the pool, no swimmies. And so he's, he's ready to jump in. He hesitates a bit. He crouches and then fall jumps into my arms. And oops, I miss him and he sinks to the bottom of the pool. I'm just kidding. That, that did, but that would be terrifying if that actually happened. You know, they're getting involved and jumping in in paramedics, but it wasn't like that. I caught him. He, his fall jump lands him safely into my arms and he wants to do it again. Now, why not a big cannonball? Well, the whole water thing is a bit scary for a three-year-old, a bit scary for Andrew. After all, he can't swim. So even with me right there, he hesitates, cautiously crouches, and fall jumps because he's a bit unsure of the entire situation. I think he hesitates and falls because he wonders if it's going to be okay. And I think he jumps because he knows it will be okay, because he knows that I am in command and I am right there with him. Everything would change for Andrew if he saw his dear old dad thrashing about the water, gasping for breath, and fighting for his own life, right? Isn't it interesting that what my son believes about me, his father, influences how he responds to me in his circumstances. Brothers and sisters, what we believe about God greatly influences how we respond to God in our circumstances. The more we grasp our Father's absolute sovereignty and divine control, the more boldly we trust and obey Him in our circumstances. We may not cannonball jump. If we're honest, our faith is is more hesitant than what we would like it to be, Maybe we fall jump, but we do jump. And and our loving Father holds us up. The less we know God, the more hesitant our jump. The more we know God, the bolder our jump. Brothers and sisters, carefully turning the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and alertly watching God's sovereignly orchestrate redemptive history unto His Son's glory and His people's good strengthens our faith and hastens our obedience. It strengthens our faith and, excuse me, and hastens our obedience. Seeing the enormity of God's absolute sovereignty in the Bible is essential to bold faith and obedience. God is in every detail, even the details of our lives. So here's my thesis for today. God is sovereign and in control of the details, so boldly trust and obey Him. God is sovereign, and He is in control of the details, so boldly trust and obey Him. But saints, I want you to really personalize my thesis, so let me apply it to you true believers this way. God is sovereignly working out the details of your life for His glory 
and your greatest good. So boldly trust and obey him and things will be okay. Brothers and sisters, the absolute sovereignty and divine control of your father is meant to embolden you, reassure you, and move you to joyful obedience. Let's get the big picture first. God has a sovereign plan to save his people through his son, and he's doing it. Scripture shows us exactly that in Genesis 3.15. God made a covenant promise to raise up a savior to redeem his people from the curse of their sin. And we see God doing exactly that throughout the Old Testament. Through the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, through the prophets, through his preservation of a remnant. And all the way through the New Testament as well, we see nothing other than God sovereignly working the details of history to unfold His covenant of grace. Things often look bleak for God's people. The invasion of curse and of sin, uh, death, infertility, slavery, suffering, war, famine, moral failure, corrupt leadership, broken laws and covenants, the destruction of Israel and Judah, exile. The promise of, of a Savior seemed very dim at times, yet God was sovereignly working the details of history towards His great redemptive end. The Old Testament The Old Testament is a massive comfort for us today because it describes in vivid detail how God has always been sovereignly working out His good plan and no obstacle, however big or however small, stops Him. Then we come to Matthew and we see the same thing. God is sovereign and in control of the details, working all things for the glory of His Son and the redemption of His people. Here's my quick outline to establish my thesis. Number one, God protects the child. Joseph believes and obeys God. Number two, God protects the child. Herod does not believe and obey God. And number three, God protects the child. Joseph continues to believe and obey God. First, God protects the child. Joseph believes and obeys God. Well, the wise men left, and verse 13 continues, Behold, there's that word again, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now we know Herod's true intentions. He didn't want to worship the child. He wanted to destroy the child. God God supernaturally revealed Herod's intentions to Joseph. With, With Herod's merciless threat looming, God graciously revealed his um plan uh, the intents of Herod to Joseph by an angel. Rise, Joseph, take the child and his mother and get out of here. Get out of here. Flee to Egypt and, and Joseph, protect the child. Remain there until I tell you to move. Now, what's all that about? God was sovereignly protecting his son, and he was using Joseph to do it. That's sovereignty. That's control. See, before the world began, the triune God made a covenant of redemption. The Father designed redemption, the Son would achieve redemption, and the Spirit would apply redemption. And so the Father's preservation of His now incarnate Son is evidence of God's commitment to the cross. 
Commitment to redemption, a fatal wound to the Christ child at this moment would mean no cross and no redemption. So by preserving the Christ child, God was also preserving redemption. John Calvin insightfully commented, this flight is a part of the foolishness of the cross, but it surpasses all the wisdom of the world that he may appear at his own time as the Savior of Judea, he is compelled to flee from it and is nourished by Egypt from which nothing but what was destructive to the church of God had ever proceeded. Who would not have regarded with amazement such an unexpected work of God? End of quote. An unexpected work of God. Notice, God promised Joseph future grace God told Joseph, remain there until I tell you. And implied in those instructions was safety in Egypt and something after Egypt. Additionally, God had promised Joseph in a, in a previous dream that Mary's son would save his people from their sins. God promised future grace to Joseph. Now, why Egypt? Well, Dr. Uh, William Henderson suggested Egypt was close. Many Jews lived there. It was outside of Herod's jurisdiction, and it was God's sovereign plan to fulfill his ancient prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1. Now, here's a good question to ask. How did Joseph respond to God's divine command to rise, take, flee, and remain? How did he respond? Verses 14 and 15. And he rose... And he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. He rose, he took, he fled, and he remained as God commanded him to do. Note the order there. This is important to to think this stuff through. Joseph first experienced God's grace and his special revelation, and then by grace, like Abraham, Joseph believed and obeyed God. Faith and obedience are grace-induced and spirit-wrought responses to God's special revelation. Make sure you get that. A person believes and a person obeys God when the Spirit reveals to them gospel truth and sovereignly works faith in their heart. Joseph is an example of that. God revealed some gospel truth to Joseph in dreams, and Joseph responded with bold faith and obedience. God, brothers and sisters, has revealed Christ in full in the gospel to us in Scripture, and we too must respond with what? With bold faith and obedience. Joseph did what he did with only part of the story. Right? It wasn't complete at that point. How much greater should our faith be with all of the story revealed to us in Christ in Scripture? Joseph is an illustration of how believers respond to God's grace and His revealed will. Now, have you noticed how often Matthew takes us back to prophecies in the Old Testament? He'll keep doing it. This will be a theme. We're not going to give up on the Old Testament thing because it's throughout the rest of Matthew. So he's going to keep doing this. Why does he do it? Because he wants his readers to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ promised long ago 
and is the fulfillment of God's gracious covenant promises. Matthew is saying, here is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He, he is the Christ. He is the promised Savior from long ago. That's what Matthew is trying to do. He's trying to show us that he's good news. So again, the Old Testament is not trivial. It's not trivial, but it is essential to Matthew's argument and essential to the entire gospel story. In verse 15, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, verse 1 in Old Testament prophecy. Now, what's Hosea 11, verse 1 about? Well, a bit bit of background on Hosea. One source said, quote, the central theme of the book of Hosea is Israel's breaking of the covenant that God made with the people when he redeemed them from Egypt. It's a central theme. Their covenantal unfaithfulness, breaking the covenant. God loved and he chose Israel and delivered Israel from bitter slavery in Egypt. And God lovingly made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. We call that the Mosaic covenant. But Israel spurned God's grace and was unfaithful to the covenant. Hosea then gives us graphic detail of Israel's vile sin and wickedness and Gomer's prostitution and unfaithfulness in her marriage to Hosea parallels Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness to God. That's the idea of the book. So God warned his people then, and yet he also reminds them of his steadfast love. Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What's Hosea talking about? Why is he saying that? Well, he was reminding Israel at that time of God's grace, of God's election, of God's deliverance, and God's love in the exodus from Egypt. Hosea refers to Israel as God's beloved son, which squares with Exodus 4, where God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You see, the the son language foreshadows something. It's telling us something ahead of time that we need to see later on. After God delivered Israel from Egypt, and after he graciously established a covenant with them at Sinai, how did Israel do in the wilderness? Horribly. Horribly. They broke covenant and were unfaithful to God over and over and over and over again. Yet, God remained faithful. Understand that God calling Israel his firstborn son was typological of Jesus Christ. In other words, Israel as God's firstborn son prefigured a greater firstborn son. That's the point of Israel. God's exile of Israel from the land because of their covenantal unfaithfulness. Well, it may have been the end of theocratic national Israel, But it was not the end of the gospel. In fact, it was serving to further the gospel. A greater son was coming who would be all that Israel failed to be and do all that Israel failed to do. The son is preeminent in the story. So Matthew applies Hosea 11 verse 1 to whom? To Jesus Christ. So ask yourself then, what does Matthew want me to understand about Jesus when he applies Hosea 11 verse 1 to Jesus? What is Matthew trying, what point is he trying to make? Matthew wants you to see 
that Jesus Christ is God's true Israel, God's true son. That's what he wants you to see. Think, think about how Jesus' life parallels Israel's history. His life was threatened. He ends up in Egypt. Then God delivers him out of Egypt. Sounds familiar. Then what happens to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 that we'll get to in 10 years? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Sounds familiar. And then we ask the question, how did Jesus do in the wilderness? He flawlessly keeps God's covenant. Flawlessly. He obeys God's law, all of it. And he proves to be God's faithful son. Jesus is the greater and the true Israel. The greater and true son. One study Bible summarizes it like this. Matthew means that the history of God's redemption of Israel points forward to Jesus. The true son of God. When Israel left Egypt, its fidelity as God's son was tested 40 years in a wilderness. And the record of this testing is largely one of failure. Jesus is later tested in the wilderness 40 days. He sustains his test and shows that he is indeed the faithful son of God. Think for a moment of what Israel was and what God commanded Israel to do. And think of how fickle and how unfaithful Israel was. And then think of Christ. Was he not all that Israel was supposed to be? Did he not do all that Israel was supposed to do? It is Jesus alone who secured all the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew uses Hosea 11.1 1 to show you, dear brothers and sisters, in the New Testament, the profound glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is sovereign and in control of the details. Brothers and sisters, make sure that you connect this stuff to your life. If you don't make the connection to your life, it's, it's just sad. Make the connection. God is sovereignly working out the details of your life for his glory and for your salvation and for your greatest good. So, so boldly trust him and boldly obey him. And the promise is things will be okay. Things will be okay. Second, God protects the child. Herod does not believe and obey God. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Ironic. Herod tried to trick the wise men to locate the child, but God sovereignly intervened. He directed the wise men away from Herod and ultimately tricked Herod. God got the last laugh here. How, how did Herod respond to the gospel of the Christ child? Well, Herod depicts what unrepentant sin does to a person. Herod's persistent unbelief, persistent unrepentant heart, led him to disobey God, to do horrible things, 
Herod's psychosis and rage increased as he continued to reject God's saving grace in God's promised son. Don't we see this today with people who persist in their unbelief and lack of repentance? They grow increasingly miserable in their unbelief. Herod was overtaken by selfishness and anger and therefore narcissistically and systematically slaughtered all the male children two years or younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding region in order to do what? In order to preserve his own power. A striking similarity to the infanticide committed in many doctor's offices today. Power. Some people critique the reliability of the Bible because they can't find Herod's infanticide in any other ancient historical document. However, Bethlehem and the surrounding region uh, was sparsely populated, and so it may have been as few as 15 uh, little, little boys uh, that were killed, which pales in comparison to other documented atrocities committed by Herod. Matthew mentions this relatively small-scale infanticide because there it, it has a purpose. It's a direct connection to Jeremiah 31, verse 15 in ancient prophecy. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Once again, Matthew is taking us back into the Old Testament to make a point about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah's day. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen. The southern kingdom of Judah was in sad spiritual shape. And Judah and Jerusalem fell to Babylon. The nation of Israel became extinct. And Israel was exiled from the promised land all because of Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness. Things were bad. They were looking really bad. Well, Ramah was located between northern Israel and southern Judah. When Judah fell, people gathered at Ramah to be exiled to Babylon. So Ramah represented what? Defeat, death, and destruction for national Israel. Jeremiah used Rachel metaphorically, she had been dead for many years, used it metaphorically for the sorrow of Israel's destruction and the sorrow of Israel's exile. Matthew then takes that and applies the sorrow of Israel to the slaughter of male children in Bethlehem in Jesus' day. It was as if the hope of the promised son was being snuffed out of Bethlehem and beyond, and yet as horrific Horrific as the executions of those little boys were, those sons, God was sovereignly protecting one son and therein redemption for all of God's people. One studied Bible note states, while the young males are being killed, God is protecting Christ so that in his death and resurrection, he would save his people from their sins. Do you see what was going on? Though the stench of death filled Bethlehem and beyond, the joy of redemption was dawning. Jeremiah 31, 15, no doubt, my friends, is a sad verse, a tragic verse, but it is positioned in Jeremiah between incredible gospel promises of hope and joy and salvation. 
Before, verse 15, Jeremiah prophesies things like this. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. My people shall be satisfied by my goodness, declares the Lord. And after verse 15, God promises uh, words of of promise and restoration and words of return, words like, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy, and there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. God says this about his people, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. What is Jeremiah talking about? Redemption in Christ alone. Redemption in Christ alone. The point of Jeremiah 31. Matthew used Jeremiah 31 verse 15 to show the deep sorrow of Israel grieving the loss of their beloved little sons and yet one little son escaped. By God's sovereign design, the promised Christ child escaped Herod. But in time, he would willingly lay down his life and not escape. God's divine just wrath poured out on him on the cross. In the horror of the cross would come the end of weeping and the fullness of joy for Rachel and for all of her children. God is sovereign. God is in control of the details. God protected the child. Why? Because the one son's cross was the decree of God. Now, it may be hard for us to swallow that God decreed foreordained the killing of those little boys. Hard to swallow. Jeremiah 31 verse 15 confirms that God decreed the event. But if we cannot see how that horrific event works for God's glory and redemption, how much harder it will be for us to swallow the cross where God slaughtered his own son for his glory and the achievement of redemption for his people. The cross is infinitely more horrific than Herod's infanticide because of the infinite value of the son crucified on it. Saints, evil is real. It's real. Yet evil serves the sovereign and divine purposes of God for his glory. If that is not true, the cross is powerless. And we are all in deep, deep trouble because God is powerless to do anything for us. Satan worked to destroy Christ. God's word to the serpent in the garden was true. You shall bruise his heel. And Satan did. The cross was Satan's bruise of the son's heel, but the resurrection was the son's bruise of the serpent's head. And saints, Satan is striving now to destroy you, the beloved of Christ. 
So let me just ask you, what, what hope do you have to escape this? What hope? How, do you realize who Satan is? How are you going to escape? How am I going to escape? Brothers and sisters, we have one certain hope of escape. One child escaped Herod's sadistic plot. He grew up and he didn't escape God's just wrath on the cross. The cross shouts of God's absolute sovereignty in redemption and God's commitment to save every single one of his beloved children. None are lost by the schemes of Satan. Not one. Because of the Son. As sure as God protected that one child, God will protect every adopted child of his because of his Son. Has God not proved to you from the life of Christ that he is sovereign, that he is in control of the details? Saints, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, weapons? Nothing. Be confident, dear saints, be confident. That neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, present thing nor future things, powers, height nor depth, nothing in all of creation will separate us, will ever separate us, you and me, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But how? How? Our God is sovereign. That's how. He's sovereign. Our God is in control of the details. Our God protected Christ until the cross where he then removed his protection and unleashed his crushing justice upon Christ so that you and I, brothers and sisters, so that you and I will be sovereignly protected forever. Forever. Rejoice that God protected the Son. Rejoice that God protects you in the Son. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God is sovereignly working out the details of your life for his glory and for your greatest good precisely because you are united to Christ by faith? Matthew gives you sufficient reason to believe it. So believe it. So believe it. And then obey God and things will be okay. Things will be okay. Verse 19 says, but when Herod died, Herod wanted Christ dead, God wanted Herod dead. Don't mess with God's son. Third and last, God protects the child. Joseph continues to believe and obey God. Verse 19, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. God got rid of the threat and again made his sovereign will clear to Joseph, rise, take, go. How did faith-filled Joseph respond to God's commands? Verse 21, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. God gave Joseph grace. And by grace and by the Spirit, Joseph responded with what? Bold faith and obedience. 
Now, history records that the political scene of Palestine changed after Herod died. Herod's territory was divided into uh, four territories ruled by three of his sons. Herod Antipas became tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Philip became tetrarch of various smaller territories. Archelaus was given half of Herod's kingdom and became ethnarch of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. Ethnarch is more powerful than tetrarch. And so Archelaus was the most powerful of Herod's sons. Archelaus was ruthless just like his father, and the people hated him. Caesar Augustus feared a revolution of the people, and he actually deposed and banished Archelaus to Gaul. And after Archelaus' rule, Rome appointed governors, including Pontius Pilate, who we will see later in the narrative. For good reason, Joseph was scared to go back to Israel because of Archelaus. Archelaus was a bad dude. But once again, God intervened and sovereignly protected his son by warning Joseph in a dream. So Joseph and his family headed to Galilee where the gentler Herod Antipas ruled. You know, Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about Joseph. But what it does say is profound. It's profound and wonderfully illustrates what God's sovereign grace does in someone's life. Joseph shows us God's grace, and he shows us simple, true, and bold faith and obedience. In fact, Joseph shows us guilt, grace, gratitude. Joseph took his family to Nazareth, Joseph's and Mary's hometown, and once again, Matthew links the little detail to Old Testament prophecies. But this time, instead of linking it to a specific prophet, all right, Matthew says prophets, and that's noteworthy. See, the Old Testament doesn't mention Nazareth explicitly, which is interesting. So then we ask, well, did Matthew make a mistake then? Well, no, there's a better conclusion. Matthew very well could have used prophets not to state a specific prophet, uh, prophecy of one prophet, but to state a more general prophetic theme in all of the prophets, an implicit theme paralleling Nazareth somehow, but still, what's the connection? One possibility is this. In the New Testament, Nazareth was rural and disreputable. Not, this isn't Bent Creek, okay, which I found out is in the top 1,000 wealthiest neighborhoods in the country. Our Bent Creek. All right. I don't live there. Anyway, probably wouldn't want to. I don't know. If you live in Bent Creek, that's not meant to offend you. Okay. So, so that could be it. Remember Nathaniel's words in John 1.46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Ouch. The small town is listening. All right? Do you want to be saying that stuff? All right? And, and we have today these derogatory names for people from rural areas, don't we? So white trash is an insult. That's an insult for poor white people, especially those from the rural southern United States. Hick or country bumpkin or yokel are all uh, similar insults. Well, Dr. Craig Blomberg suggests that Nazarene was slang for someone from a remote or an, um, an obscure place, like calling someone a hick. Jesus was from Nazareth, disreputable Nazareth, and people looked down on him. And when you consider passages like Isaiah 53, where it prophesied that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, and one from whom men hide their faces, and that he was despised and we esteemed him not, and you connect that idea to Nazareth in Matthew 2, kind of makes sense. 
Another option is that Matthew is using Nazareth as a word play with the Hebrew word nazer. Nazer. Uh, Dr. Blomberg notes this. A common suggestion links Nazareth with the Hebrew nazer, which means branch and signifies a king from David's line. Matthew would then be making a typical Hebrew play on words because Nazareth itself does not derive from, from nazer. So, so it's likely Matthew is referring to, prof, to the prophetic theme of disdain and rejection or a Davidic king connection. Either way, whatever it is, it's beautiful and it's right and good. And God directed Joseph and his family to Galilee, to Nazareth, so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. God is sovereign and in control of the details. Okay. God is sovereign and in control of the details. Okay? But you broke up with your boyfriend and girlfriend and you feel horrible inside. Uh, your spouse died and you feel alone. Your child walked away from God and your heart breaks. Your boss is Herod <laughs> and you hate getting up and going to work. Your family is estranged and you grieve. Your health is deteriorating and you lament your old age. You are the target of gossip and lies and you feel angry. Your emotions are, are all out of control and you feel overwhelmed. Your bank account is depleting and, and your hope is waning. Your loved one is near death and you're really, really scared. Where is God's sovereignty in your struggles? Okay, God sovereignly worked out the details of Christ's life, but what about your life? What about my life? Don't, don't we wonder about that sometimes? If God, was, if God was sovereign, then why? If God was sovereign and, and in control of the details, then how could he... God's sovereignty and control are often distant theological realities that we do not easily enjoy in our very difficult circumstances. But brothers and sisters, God beautifully unveils for us his absolute sovereignty and divine control in Scripture to build your faith so that you will joyfully trust and obey him in your circumstances. Your, your faith, it, it may be more of a fall jump than it is a cannonball, but God is revealing to you in Matthew what he is really like so that your, your jump of faith and your obedience will be bolder, will be braver, will be more daring. Do you believe that God has ordained even your suffering for your good? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sovereign and that he is in the control of the details of your life? And if so, here's how that benefits you. If so, you can obey God with patience in adversity, thankfulness in prosperity, and you can be confident in your heart of hearts that your Father has you and that nothing will separate you from his love. The more you doubt the sovereignty of God, the more tentative your faith and obedience will be. 
The more you trust the sovereignty of God, the bolder your faith and obedience will be. My faith and obedience are so often very less than bold. I mean, talk to Christina after the service. It's ugly, ugly. Fall jump at best. You know, just, (laughs) I hope he catches me. But you know what God is doing? He's been doing this my entire life. He's been revealing to me more and more his sovereignty, his control, his goodness, revealing that to me through Scripture, through how he cares for me in my circumstances, and he's, he's building my faith. It's pathetic, a fall jump at best, but he's building it up, and, and he's making me bolder to believe and do things that I didn't before. And as I know God more, as I commune with God more, as I enjoy God more, as I trust God more, I become bolder in faith and bolder in obedience. And so, my dear friends, we must know God. We must know God as he has revealed himself in Scripture so that we may be bold in faith and bold in obedience. Don't don't settle for just a thin view or the world's view of God. Settle for God's view of God. In Scripture, clearly articulated and revealed for us to delight in and believe, God is sovereign and God is in control of the details of my life, of your life. So boldly trust him and obey him. And he promises you things will be okay.